0: evening and uh, I'm sure we'll have a few more come in but uh, uh, if you haven't uh, grabbed a cup of coffee uh, go ahead and get up and grab some we've got I probably have decaf and the regular just decaf, just decaf tonight oh evening that's decaf there you go that's all we ever have I'm learning I know that's all I ever drink is decaf but I thought maybe others had something else Sunday morning is regular and decaf. gotcha okay well I want to welcome our live stream audience. Those of you who are watching from home, hope you just uh, are able to grab your Bible and maybe a notepad, and and uh, you know we can be Bible students anywhere we are in life. But you know, more than just being a Bible student, it's that we are committed to be uh, in relationship to Jesus and have that relationship be authentic and real. And so, um, I was talking with one of our elders before service, and how we were talking about how important it is that we not just know the Bible, but that the Bible leads us to Jesus. And it was in Matthew, or in John chapter 5, let me pull that up real quick for you. In John 5, and I think around verse 39, John 5, 39. Let me see if I can grab that here. And... It actually says this, Jesus is speaking to the, the Pharisees, and uh, He says to them, John 39, He said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. The goal is not just to know the Scriptures. The Pharisees knew the Scriptures, but what they lacked was what the Scripture pointed them towards. And Jesus said this, uh, And it is, that they, the, uh, it is the scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Well, thank the Lord we didn't refuse to come to Christ. Uh, those of you who are here and saved, you opened your heart to Christ, which is a wonderful thing. But yet we can still become just Bible students. And the reality is we're called to be what? In relationship with Jesus. And so we study for the purpose of knowing our Savior and our friend better so that we can then come into deeper relationship, more intimate relationship with Him. So let's begin tonight with prayer. We're in 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 11, and it's very possible that we'll cover a good portion of chapter 12. So let's pray. Father, I want to thank you tonight for this body of believers. We are uh, called the Ecclesia Kaleo, uh, meaning the called ones, and uh, this is church. Church is not a time, church is not a location, church is not a name. Church is those who are called that gather together in the name of the Lord. And that's what we are, that's who we are, and we're here. We're praying that tonight, Lord, you would have your way in our service, and you would speak into our hearts the things that we need to hear, and that the word would come alive, quicken it that we would understand it, and that uh, this living Word would flesh out in us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Man, I like it. You guys are fired up tonight. I got Bill right here. He's my, am- he's my amen corner. I love it, Bill. Uh, verse 1, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. Now that's we're talking about 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Nahash means serpent, interestingly enough. Uh, Jabesh-Gilead was an Israelite town on the east side of the Jordan River in the territory that was given to Manasseh. Uh, Nahash and the Ammonites had surrounded Jabesh-Gilead, and by doing so, uh, uh, Nahash was making his demand very clear to God's people. He said, you either surrender or you'll be conquered. That's basically what he said. Look what it says in the latter part of the verse. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Interesting. Uh, They didn't cry out to God for help. They actually went into this diplomatic thought and they said, if you'll make a treaty with us, then we'll serve you. Fearing that their lives would be taken, they offered us a peace treaty, quite honestly, uh, and interestingly, such is the thinking of a people who have moved far from God. Though any time we drift from God, we're going to come up with our own plans. Now, you're going to find as we, this story plays out that God actually uses their story. He, he, he might have even led them into that kind of a response because of the outcome that we're going to come to this evening. But oftentimes, the, you know, always we should pray first, Right? When we come into a tenuous situation a crisis event takes place immediately we should seek god for counsel god for help they were not close to the lord and therefore they came up with this plan but god was trying to also establish saul as king so this played right into the 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 uh what god had planned out for for saul so let's continue here verse 2 but nahash the ammonite said to them on this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel wow. so he's actually saying two things there number 1 I want to disable your troops so that I don't have to worry about you uh, actually rising up against me if we make treaty secondly he's saying I want my name among the Israelites to be great. And so I'm putting, I'm, I'm, he's saying to them, I'm, you need to denounce your God and you need to make my name great. I want your people to see me as their master, okay? So this is a pretty strong uh, statement made by Nahash, whose name means serpent. Verse three, the elders of Jabash said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. (laughs) Can you imagine that? You know, you're surrounded. They're ready to take you. They make a demand. You either come out or we're going to kill you. And you say, well, give us seven days so we can see if we can find some (laughs) reinforcements to fight against you. Now, who would do that in their right mind? That's an odd demand when the enemy's already in position to crush you. Uh, From their view, they really had no other options. Now, again, they did have another option. They could have cried out to God. Who knows how and what God would have done? Uh, He did do something here, but it wasn't because they cried out. At least this passage does not record that. Now, the question is, why would Nahash ever agree to such a ridiculous demand to begin with? That's really what we're up to here. Uh, Well, let me give you some thoughts on that. First of all, it's possible that Nahash knew... Of the story of Judges chapter 21 and that's when there was a civil war that broke out among the Israelites and they all rose up against the tribe of Benjamin because in the tribe of Benjamin uh, there were men who actually went into perversion sin and had a woman killed and uh, so when they came to ask for the men in that city uh, that they might be able to uh, take them out and, and, and kill them for what they did. Uh, the Benjaminites said, no, we're going to keep them here, and they fought them. And, uh, and so maybe uh, he's thinking, what, what tribe, because all of Israel ro- rose up against them, what tribe's going to come to your rescue? Nobody's going to come to your rescue. And uh, so he's thinking, okay, I'll play along with your game. Uh, Plus, by allowing messengers to go through the fortification and go out to other parts of Israel, he probably thought this would strengthen his reputation. And in fact, it did. It did. So uh, here's something that we can learn from from a similarity in our lives with Satan. Okay, Just as this guy's name means serpent and he's playing with the Israelites, well, Satan is always trying to, to attack us. And here's what Satan does to us. He tries to intimidate us, but he can't do anything against us without our agreement. And and that's kind of the the picture in the story. Uh, We we treat Satan like he's got all this power and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, He has no power over a believer. Christ lives in you. He's in you. Therefore, you have to give him uh, approval in order for Him to do something to you. He, he, can't, he can't affect you that way. Uh, Satan's end result is to get us to serve Him, just like Nahash was trying to get them to serve Him. Okay, uh, He used intimidation. Satan uses intimidation. How, how many of you found that when you come into a crisis or something and then the temptation comes to you, oh, I don't know what to do and, I, and all of a sudden worry just overwhelms you and instead of turning to God. You're just overwhelmed, confused, and in a place of indecision. And that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. And yet, when things play out, either you turn to the Lord and God provided, or maybe you didn't. But even after the fact, was it really ever as bad as it looked on the front side? It usually isn't, because Satan is a master manipulator. He's an intimidator. His bark is much greater than his bite. And, and so that's another thing. And then also Satan wants to humiliate us. And at the same time, he wants to exalt himself, just like Nahash here. See, by humiliating uh, a, a single believer, he brings a reproach to all God's people. And that's what he was doing, Nahash was doing to the Israelites. He let the messengers go out and the word spread all over the place that the the... Uh, Jabesh and Gilead was under siege and there's nothing they can do about it, and the enemy's going to kill him. And all of Israel was fearful of Nabash and, and the Ammonites. So that's, what, that's how he works. He also wants to disable us from being effective in our service to God. So he tries to blind us to the truth. That's exactly what Nahash did here. So, verse 4 when the messengers came to Gibeah, of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. There it is. Exactly the reaction that Nahash wanted. Okay, Israel would weep over the news of Jabesh and his great army. Now, verse 5, Behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Okay? Now let's not overlook what this newly anointed king is doing. He was just anointed king. They had this big shindig, and now he leaves and goes where? To a palace? No. He goes home. What's he doing when he hears the people crying? What's he doing? He's coming in from the field with his oxen the yoke of oxen here's the king of israel who starts out as this humble man he simply goes out finds out he's the king the people he's anointed as king the, uh, samuel tells the people that this is your new king and then after that celebration he goes home and he works the field that's how humble he was in the beginning that's very important for us to remember that as we continue moving forward in this, in this narrative with King Saul. So, uh, it also reveals this, that the, this was a new form of government for Israel. Israel had always been a monarchy, right? Uh, I'm sorry, monarchy. A theocracy, which means God-led. The word, the word uh, Israel means God-governed. Remember Jacob? Uh, and his name was changed, he came under the control of God. And so so now they've shifted from God's control to a monarchy. There's going to be a king who will now control. Well, they hadn't had time to set up the governmental system. So Saul is home working in the field, and, uh, and he gets word. And the spirit, when he hears the people crying, and he's told the news of the men of Jabesh, listen to this, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words." So, even though the people of uh, Jabesh uh, did not cry out to God as they should, yet God is going to use that terrible ordeal, and probably was the one who brought up Nahash and the Ammonites to begin with, so that He could give the people a picture and, and let them know, I have been the one who brought Saul into power as king. Even though I didn't want you to have this king at this time, and you're the ones that wanted this king, but I'm, I'm in it. I'm, I'm in it. And so uh, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God rushes upon uh, Saul. Again, remember, we're talking Old Testament here, right? So it's not that the, the people were filled with the Spirit as we are in the New Testament, where the Spirit of God lives inside of us. This is still the Old Testament. So in those days, when something was happening, uh, a leader, the Spirit of God came upon the leader. And that's what was happening here. Uh, This is always God's pattern when His Spirit comes upon us. And and, and, and that is this, that it's always for the sake of others, never for ourselves. Uh, If I could just very quickly repeat something that I've shared before, but because there's so much misunderstanding today among Christians, I feel it's necessary to talk about this. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. We covered 16 weeks back in year one of this fellowship simply covering uh, the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We covered the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We covered everything you could know about the Holy Spirit in the Bible. We took 16 weeks. One of the things that we need to understand is that in the new testament after christ went to the cross we've been reconciled back to god through the work of jesus christ the holy spirit the minute a person is saved the holy spirit comes into them prior to that before they were saved he was convicting you and i of sin righteousness and judgment but the second that we believe in jesus christ the son that we repent of our sins the holy spirit comes in and the greek preposition is en he enters you okay and now he's filling you up what with the teachings of christ the bible the word the word comes alive because the spirit brings it alive in you now you have this power and and that you didn't have before because you're a believer now you are anointed by the way in the old testament only those who were carrying special responsibility for people were anointed by God through the prophet, or through the, uh, in this case, the prophet Samuel, but also through the priest. And, and, and in the New Testament, every believer is anointed. There's no more of this, well, he's such an anointed vessel, as if nobody else is anointed except that guy. Uh, that's just, that's not true. Every, you are anointed. So the Holy Spirit's in you, and He's, he's teaching you everything you need to know to live out, to flesh out the Christian life. In fact, Romans uh, 8.30 says that one of his roles is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. So that's, he's in you, and that's what he's doing. The work that he does with that Greek preposition in, listen, is for you. He's in you to help you, to grow you, to counsel you. To give you wisdom and discernment, to give you gifts, to serve in the body of Christ. That's all a work in you. But then there's another Greek preposition, and it's the Greek word ippi, which is E P I. Ippi. Jesus spoke uh, the prophecy of Isaiah when it was speaking of himself, and he said, For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Ippi. And He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He is upon me. If you're a Christian, He's already filled you. That's for you to grow, to develop, to mature, okay? But when He comes upon you, and every morning you get up, Lord, I pray that today, I want to surrender to your work in me and through me. Because that Greek preposition, ipi, when he comes upon you, it's never for you. It's always for the sake of others. Last week, we used the illustration of the pitcher and just keep pouring into the cup, and the water flows over the, over the cup, and it just keeps pouring. And what happens to that water as it moves out from the cup? It hits whatever's in the path. That's you. Holy Spirit, you're saved by Christ. Conversion occurs. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit. He comes in you. He fills you. Matures you. Conforms you to the image of Christ. And then there are moments where this comes upon you. And in those moments, it's because He's wanting to use you for the sake of others. You don't have to do anything. It's not you. It's you surrendering to Him so that He can use you for the sake of others. Yes. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Yeah, yeah. The pressure's off, folks. You don't have to be this power Christian. The power's in you through Christ, amen? Yes. Yeah. You just walk in it, and you just obey and do whatever He tells you to do when He tells you to do it. And watch what happens. That is, by the way, what Mary said to the people when Jesus turned the water to wine. Just do whatever He tells you to do. <laughs> Well, that's what we should do every day. Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I want to do it. That you are coming under the, 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 the influence of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. Yes. You've now taken, you're no longer in control. He has your life. He's the one that says, well, let's, let's rise and pray. Let's spend some time with the Father. Let me take you to some scriptures and let's grow in our intimacy of understanding with uh, who God is. He teaches you how to study the Word. He teaches you how to worship God. See, that's the work of the Spirit. That's for you. But then there's this other level of work. And in this case, here's Saul, and the Spirit of God rushes upon him. Why? Because Saul is about to be used by God to do something mighty for the sake of others, not for the sake of Saul. What bothers me today that I see, and I'm sure it bothers you, whenever we see Christians who are simply wanting more of the Holy Spirit for themselves. I just need to feel, I need to sense. i got to have that experience. It's not about you. You're already filled up. Why don't you just, instead of trying to get more feelings, why don't you just let the Holy Spirit who's in you begin to grow you? We, we do one of two things. It's the way the enemy works. He's just such a he's a conniver, he's a deceiver and he's so subtle in his attacks. He'll either get us to be all about grace and no truth or all about truth and no grace. Because we're, then we're out of balance. We're out of whack. God wants us to walk in grace and truth. Amen. Yep. So here's Saul. Saul is now greatly influenced by the Holy Spirit because He came upon him. And look what it says in verse 6, next part of the verse, "...and his anger was greatly kindled." Now, understand this is a righteous, spirit-led anger that comes inside of Paul. The Bible says that we can be angry and not sin. That's in Ephesians 4.26, right? So not all anger is sinful. But most of our anger is usually driven by selfishness, <laughs> okay? If you really want to boil it down, in fact, most sin that you and I commit, the root of it is called what? P-R-I-D-E, okay? And, and it's all about us, right? Well, Paul, uh, Saul's not thinking of himself here. He's thinking of the injustice that's about to happen to uh, God's people at the hands of the Ammonites, So, uh, Saul's anger in this case was not out of a personal sense. So, he took a yoke of oxen, verse 7, and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the… At first you read that, you think the next thing he's going to say is, he's going to take that yoke of oxen, cut it up, and he's going to offer it as a sacrifice to God. No, no, that's not what he does. Look at this. Okay, this is like something out of The Godfather, okay? The movie, The Godfather. This is like mafia stuff, okay? He took a yoke of oxen, he cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to you. Wow! Whoa! Whoa! Okay, instead of getting a special delivery of a dead fish wrapped in a box, you get a chunk of oxen instead. And he says, if you don't come out and fight in the name of the Lord against this, this evil influence, then you're going to be in the box. Okay, uh, so he's, he's really coming straight at them. They, you, you say, oh, that's too harsh. Wait a minute. He just became king. And we already read that not everybody, when he was announced as king, not everybody got excited about it. Some men walked away and said, well, why him? What's so special about him? And so here's Saul, and all of a sudden Israel knows that there is now a leader in Israel who is very serious. They knew the Lord called uh, them to do something about the crisis at Jabesh Gilead. Saul has just made it very clear that they're all to participate in it, okay? So here's the deal, when the cause is right, And the need is desperate, it's wrong to do nothing. That's true for all of us. Say that again. When the cause is right and the need is desperate, it's wrong to do nothing. Doing nothing in that case is a sin. When you have an opportunity to bring righteousness into a situation, we should stand for righteousness. Always stand for righteousness. I I believe this is what fueled the patriots of this nation. Back in the American Revolution, this is very interesting, Americans faced a seemingly impossible uh, uh, obstacle. When the guns fired at Lexington and over in Concord in 1775, there was not yet even a constitutional army. We didn't have an army at that time. The British were there, they were coming upon us in in the infancy of this nation, and there was nothing that we had to fight back with. Those battles were fought by local militia. Okay? Very few Americans had any military experience, and there was no method of training, no method of supplying, no method of paying an army. Okay? New England farmers began to arm themselves with pitchforks, whatever they had, the few rifles they had for hunting, and they trained themselves for battle against the British. Okay, now these troops were dubbed Minute Men because they were ready in an instant. When they would go out to work the field and pull the and, and push the plow, they had their rifle on the plow with them, so they could leave immediately if called upon. And go and help. They did not want the tyranny of the British to come down upon people who came here under the whole purpose of freedom of worship and liberty and religion. Amen. They came on that's why people came from England. And also taxation without representation. And so these people were gonna stand for what is right, and they did. On Sunday morning, January 21, 1776, Pastor John Muhlenberg climbed into his pulpit in Woodstock, Virginia, and he began to preach. He was in his customary black clerical robe. That was a tradition of the dress of a minister preaching in the 18th century, okay? Okay. Muhlenberg preached from the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. He read how there is a time for all things. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest. Then his voice began to rise, as he said, and there's a time of war and a time of peace. And there is a time for all things, a time to preach and a time to pray. There is also a time to fight, and that time is now. And he peeled off his robe and pulled from under his pulpit, his rifle, and said, who's with me? They became known as the Black-robed Brigade. Ministers, pastors, who led their people to become Minutemen and fight against the British. We would not have a nation, folks, if there weren't some folks ahead of us who really thought that the cause was right, The need was desperate, and the only thing they could do was rise up against it. Now, I am not one that pushes and promotes this idea that we get so caught up in the political ploys of man in our nation that we get all caught up in the fighting the battles of the left and the right and everything else. That pulls us right off of the main focus of our life, and that is that we would see people saved, that we would be sharers of the gospel, we would disciple those in Christ. That's who we are. That's what we're called to. But there are times in your home, in the church, in the community, when you stand for righteousness. Amen. There just are. I know that a few years ago, there was a time that God led me to preach a series of messages on sexual immorality. We covered everything from uh, adultery, fornication, we covered homosexuality, we covered incest, we covered sexual sin, and we covered it from a biblical worldview. And somehow those messages which were not given to the community, they were given to our people that they might understand the pathology of sexual sin and better be able to go and minister to people who were caught up in sexual sin. But the community heard about it, and there were those in the community, uh, especially at that time in the LGBTQ community, that rose up against us and rose up against me. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. We didn't back down. We're not going to fear man more than we fear god and so we just continued we didn't fight we didn't get mean we didn't get nasty there was a attempt at one point where we were told that they're going to have a big group show up and stand outside on the sidewalk in front of the church and they're going to hold up signs and and they're gonna you know just try to block people from really coming in and worshiping and so our decision was okay let's make sure we have plenty of coolers filled with water bottles and we'll, we'll take them out and we'll set them down and say, here's some water for you. <laughs> you have a right to speak as much as we do. But don't think for a second that we're going to stop speaking the truth just because you don't like it. Yep. See, we there's a time to stand. The Bible is filled with stories where men and women were led of God to stand when it wasn't popular. In fact, as we move towards the end of time... Uh, there's going to be great persecution, and there will be thousands upon tens of thousands who are going to suffer martyr deaths. They're going to die for the sake of Christ. That's yet to come. I will tell you that right now that equality, uh, uh, what are they call it? Equality, it's, not a, it's a bill, but they got a name for it. Anyway, that they just passed in the House is now it'll go before the Senate. I don't believe it'll pass. Uh, they have to, It'll be filibustered and it'll die out, but, but anyway, but, but they're going to keep trying. And in that Equality Bill, basically it has the foundation, it has all the structure laid so that it would force churches to hire people regardless of their sexual identity. So now you're drifting over telling churches in the area of their personal religious belief What they are convicted to stand by scripturally, you're telling them what they can and cannot do. And that is when we will lovingly stand up against it. And I pray that churches all over will do that. I don't think that all of them will. Some will cater and cave in and cower to to those who are pressuring them, unfortunately. But that's what I'm talking about. Hey, it's in your home. There's time for you to stand for righteousness. My kids, if they, when they were, you know, in their teenage years or early college years, whatever you did in college, okay, that's on you. But when you come home, this is how you, if you're going to stay in our home, you'll, you'll not do those things. That's a, that's a parent that's standing for righteousness. I'm not against my children. I love my children. That's part of loving them is letting them know the truth. And, I, and you'll, you, you could pay a heavy price for that in your family. And, and we, but look, being a Christian is all about paying heavy prices. That's just the way it is, right? And so there's a time to stand for truth, whether it be over Scripture, over a nation, over your home, whatever, over the church. The, the, verse 7, again, the latter part, Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Wow. Notice the difference. Back in verse 4, the people wept aloud because of the fear that they had over Nahash and his army. But here now, the dread of the Lord falls upon them. And now, they rise up as one people, one man. They rise up. That's what happens when the Lord shows up. That's what happens when we let God in our lives. Where you used to cower in fear, now you stand strong in the confidence of God. There's a big difference between the fear of man and the fear of the Lord. Many walk in the fear of man and have no fear of the Lord. When you fear man, listen, uh, more than you fear the Lord, you will fall in line with the popular belief systems. You'll fall in line with the culture of the day. You'll be like a chameleon where whatever the environment is, you just kind of blend right in. And there are chameleon Christians today. Okay? That's just what happens. We become like a chameleon. Because you're, you're not concerned about changing anything. You're not concerned about standing for what is right. So you'll just fall in line. But when you fear God more than you fear man, you will stand for righteousness. Listen, you won't become belligerent. You won't become mean, not if if the Lord's leading you. You might become angry in a righteous way, but you're going to love the people that you're standing against. You're going to love them. I remember talking to a man one day, um, sitting out at a park, and as we were talking, he uh, started sharing with me his beliefs. And, and he was acting like he knew the Bible, and he was telling me uh, what the Bible says, that this is why he believes the way he believes. And I said, sir, I said, i, I got to humbly disagree. The Bible doesn't say that. Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. You don't understand what... And he goes off, and I, I just sat there calmly, sir, it doesn't say that. He didn't like it one bit. I never raised my voice. I never got angry. I never tried to get caught up in some big debate with him. I just spoke the truth. No, sir, it's, that's not what the Scripture says. I was hoping he would say, well, then what does it say? Because I would have loved to have shared, you know, from Scripture what it says. But he didn't. But see, you're not there to try to be the answer. God is the answer for people. You're simply there to stand and to point them towards Jesus. By just standing and saying the truth lovingly, now they have to live with that. I, I remember getting a letter from a woman who was a, a lesbian but had been converted. She came to Christ. And she was sitting in our church every week with her family. She was a 22, 21, 22-year-old 22 girl. And, and, and uh, she had a girlfriend and all, and, but she had to come to church if you're going to live in their house for a season of time. And so she was there. And she said, I would storm out and just, I hated you. I hated what you preached. Now, I wasn't preaching every week about that. It's just that when you are under conviction, you think everything's about you. Isn't that true? Yeah. So I'm just preaching the truth, and she's getting more angry. And I did preach one Sunday, and I, and I went to Romans 1, and we talked about what it says about homosexuality, a natural sin. And uh, so she writes me this letter about a year later, and she said, Pastor Greg, I want you to know that I used to be a lesbian, and God saved me, and I'm no longer in that lifestyle. Here's what she said to me, I hated you for what you were preaching, but then the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart and opened my eyes to see the truth. And she said this, Pastor, don't ever stop preaching the truth. No matter what any homosexual lesbian, whoever, whatever, says to you. You remain faithful to it. Because deep down inside, they know there's truth in what you're saying. The Holy Spirit will use it. Amen. Yes. Don't believe them when they say, no, I was born this way. Something deep inside, they, they question that. So, so we're in a society now where we can be, we can be looked down upon, canceled for taking the position that I'm preaching tonight, okay? Don't stop standing on truth. Bottom line, we're not out to hurt anybody. We're not out to try and hate people. We are called by Christ to love people, but love them with the truth. So the dread falls on the people and they came out as, as one. And, and uh, so they went from the fear of man to the fear of the Lord. Oh, that's what we wanna see in our lives, right? I love that. Every true believer having a healthy fear of the Lord, to love, honor, respect God more than man. God is the sole object of our worship, folks. Don't worship yourself. Don't worship your children. Don't worship your spouse. Don't worship your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Don't worship money. Don't worship uh, your job. Don't worship your title. Don't worship your reputation. Don't worship your, your pension plan. God is the sole object of a a true Christian's worship. This is the type of Christian that God uses to fulfill His purpose in this world. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. Matthew 10.26, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew. We just read this on Sunday morning a few weeks ago. Therefore, do not fear them. Speaking of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish leaders, He's speaking to His disciples. Do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. This is Jesus speaking. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Stand strong in the Lord. Verse 8, back in our text, When He mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000. So I guess the mafia approach worked, huh? And the men of Judah, 30,000. So when he says the people of Israel, he's talking about the region to the north, and then he's talking about those who lived around uh, in Judah or Judea. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead. So they're going to report back to the people in the city that are under siege. Tell them tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Salvation, by the way, in the Old Testament, whenever you see salvation, you can also use the word deliver, deliverance. That's what it is. So by tomorrow, you're going to be delivered by noon. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. You bet they were. Uh, army surrounding you <laughs> and giving you till the next day. And they get the word and man, they are glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said to, the, uh, to Nahash, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. (laughs) I love that. So they're deceiving the deceiver. They're deceiving the deceiver. They're giving him words of surrender. There's no surrender in them. Verse 11, The next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered. Here's how scattered they were. So that no two of them were left together. That is called a rout. <laughs> I mean, they were all, fle- the ones that lived fled, and they didn't even flee together. Okay? They all went their own direction. Okay? So Saul marched all night long, gathered 300,000 men along the way, and at this point, Saul wasn't even a soldier. What is he? He's a farmer. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. Let's just go ahead and bring that forward to our lives. Don't you think for a second, no matter what you haven't done or what you think you cannot do, when God comes upon you, you can do whatever He sets you up to do. You've got to believe that. If he can use a farmer to raise up an army of 300,000 and go out and conquer the enemy, he can use you in the church, he can use you in the community, he can use you in your workplace. Don't undersell what God can do. Not, you should undersell what you can do. You can't do anything. But God can do everything. And He lives in you. Amen. Verse 12, And the people said to Samuel, Who is it, who is, who is it that said, Shall, uh, shall Saul reign over us? In other words, we want to know who those guys were that didn't believe that you were our king. Bring them in that we may put them to death. So that's pretty scary. And Saul wisely decided that this was no time to take revenge on his opponents. It's just like Satan, after having failed to attack Israel through Nahash, to now take another tact and try to divide Israel among themselves. Saul wouldn't let it happen. He was wise enough listening to the Lord who came upon him. That's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does inside of us. He, he gives us wisdom. He gives us understanding in difficult situations. Satan will attack us any way he can, and he often uses times of victory to do so. Because, see, when there's a victory, we're busy doing this. <laughs> and, and, and he's like, oh, man, this is an opportune time and He comes to you. But you need to get your wits about you, and you need to be wise to what His ways are, and the Holy Spirit in you will give you what you need to know. He'll help you there. Verse 13, But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel, deliverance in Israel. Now here Saul is being so wise he attributes the victory to God, not himself. Did you read what he said? For today the Lord has worked deliverance, not me. See, the people started praising their king. Woo, we won. You, what a great king. The Lord did that work. This is how Saul started out. He understood, he had a healthy fear of God He was learning about God. He was coming into relationship with God and the spirit of God came upon him. And now with the wisdom of God, he got it right. I'm going to go with what God says and not my flesh. God won that battle for us. Verse 14, Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly." It, it wasn't that Saul was not king before this. He was anointed as king by Samuel back in, what was it, chapter 10. And then he was recognized as king by much of the nation of Israel in chapter, later in the same chapter, chapter 10. I think it was like verse 24. But there was still a sense in which not everybody bought into this thing. And that's exactly what happens here. God now has confirmed that Saul is, in fact, his man at this time. Because God helped him so mightily, and the people know it. Saul even said that's what happened, right? In the people's eyes, Saul had to prove himself before he would be accepted as king. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It really isn't. It's one thing for a person to be anointed or appointed, but the real evidence is in the doing. The same is true in our salvation. You can preach, go out and tell people that you're saved and talk about it all day long. But the reality is, if there's no evidence of your salvation, if there's no work that follows, understand, we're not not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Before you were saved, God already prepared the works that He wanted you to do when you'd get saved. Are you glad that your God has foreknowledge? Amen. <laughs> he saw you saved before you ever got saved. He already had the work laid out for you. How He's going to use you to touch other people's lives. Praise God for that. That's awesome. And so so the people, they're they're now confirming what God has done in Saul. It's clear now. Nobody's questioning it now. So in Saul's case, it was understandable for some to say, let's see what kind of man Saul is before we throw our support behind him. But once Saul demonstrated to them that he was called of God, now it's wrong to not get behind him. And you know, that's just like us. Somebody that God raises up and we don't like them for some reason, you know, man, they wear their shoes different, you know, whatever it is, some silly thing. And they just say, hey, it's just not my cup of tea. And we turn against them. We're not, we're, we just can't, and God's using them. And we can't give any glory to God for what He's doing with them. You understand, you're not going against the person, you're actually going against God. That's sin. You don't have to like it but you better support what God's doing. I mean, just think about it. He used you. There's somebody else going, I can't believe he's using you. (laughs) They're not telling you that, but that's what they're thinking. And they're probably telling somebody else. We're all a mess. And God uses messes. He he specializes in broken vessels. He loves broken vessels. Oh, it's beautiful when God uses us that way. And we should give Him all the glory. And, and then it's wonderful when you, got, you know God's called you and you follow Him. And then someone walks up to you. They're not being fleshly. They're not trying to be political. They just come and say, I got to tell you, man, I, I see God all over what you're doing. You really called to this. Amen. It's like a confirmation. Yeah. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Yeah. We need to affirm one another more. We need to speak encouragement to one another. It's hard to be a Christian in this day. It's not easy. Now, that's not an excuse. I'm just telling you, it's work. So encourage one another. You know what encouragement means? It means to put courage into someone. We should speak courage into one another, not out of their flesh, oh, Bill, man, you are something, buddy. You're just an amazing man. No, Bill, man, I see God all over you. He is strengthening you to do His work. I love this about you. And I've told Bill some of the things I love about him in our fellowship. That's encouragement. I'm not building the man up in his abilities. I'm building the man up that he surrendered to God and God gave him those abilities. It's God's work in Bill. right? Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal. So they went, and there they had this big celebration. What I find interesting here is that God used Satan and the Ammonites to provide the perfect opportunity for Saul to prove himself and the people that he is God's choice for king. It'd be real hard for anyone to speak against him now, wouldn't it? Don't you think? Those guys that were questioning everything before? And... and uh, I guess what, what what I'm saying there is you can't ever underestimate the sovereignty of God. God is a sovereign God, meaning He has full control. He makes all the decisions. When you hear somebody say, well, that's a sovereign nation, what they're saying is that nation has the control of itself. They choose. Nobody comes in from the outside. They're a sovereign nation. Hey, God is our sovereign king. He's already way ahead of us. And in this story, he was way ahead and he used it for his own glory. Chapter 12, now we turn back to Samuel and the testimony of Samuel's integrity. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Remember Samuel's youth, man, when God called him and how God raised him up. And the first, the first responsibility he gave young boy Samuel was to go to Eli the priest and remind him that his family was going to be cursed and not be able to continue in the priesthood because of his... Wicked sons that that Eli never disciplined. Wow. That's how he started. Uh, Let's quickly address, though, just because probably when I read it, some of you thought back when it says, My sons are with you. Samuel's saying, My sons are with you. Remember, Samuel's sons, uh, they stepped in, became the leaders as Samuel was getting older, and it didn't work. And the people came to Samuel and said, Hey, these boys, uh uh, they're not cut from the same cloth. They should not be in leadership. Remember that? So you're looking at this and going, my sons are with you. It makes it sound like they're on the platform there at the, at the, at this, uh, as he's giving this speech. No, no. He, what he's saying is, if you read in the original language, he's actually saying, uh, my sons are also of this assembly. They're with you. They're like you. He's not raising them up. That didn't work. Okay. And and after the victory of Saul over the Ammonites, Samuel knew the nation would now begin to look to to Saul for leadership. So here, he's helping Israel make the transition from his leadership to Saul's leadership. That's wonderful spiritual leadership, helping in the transition. Okay, look what he said. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. So he's right there. He's showing you a transition that's taking place. I have walked before you. I used to walk before you. I was the guy for all those years, decades. But now, there's a king, and I'm getting old and gray. Okay? That's wonderful leadership. See, if Saul or if Samuel was a prideful man, a selfish man, an insecure man, he would have continued to talk about himself as the people were praising King Saul. He didn't. He's actually there at the ceremony, and he's he's he supported saul all the way through even though he knew that saul was not god's original choice it was man's choice but he also knew the sovereignty of god god's going to use saul so i'm going to throw my support behind him we see this by how he speaks of saul and how he speaks of himself in comparison now behold the king walks before you i'm old and gray but what makes it especially hard for us to think about in our own lives as we come into those those situations where there's a transition of power, a transition of leadership. Let's say you were a Sunday school teacher for 40 years and now you're old and gray and there's this young teacher in the church and boy, they are really gifted. They're good, their heart's right. Is it easy to hand over the reins? Probably not. But if your heart is with the Lord and you know that God was the one who raised you up, then it's easier to believe and go with God raising up someone else now. See, none of us own any ministry. There is not a pastor on earth who owns the church that he pastors. Never has it been a case where it's his church. When a pastor says, well, you know, at my church, at my, my, my church, this is in my church, there is no my. It's the Lord's church. Even if you're the founding pastor, that you were the one as the church started, it's still not your church. It's the Lord's church. And as long as you remember that, then when God is ready to raise someone else up as you get older, You'll allow it to happen. In fact, you'll be part of it. You'll support it. And that happens to you as well in the ministry, in any position. What does the Bible say to the older women of the church? Train the younger women. Pour into them. Don't make it about you. Make it about them. Don't let the me monster take over your life. Me, well, this is what I did. Somebody starts saying, well, you know, the Lord... Uh, used me in this situation. I was blown away. And as soon as they finished, you're like, well, in my life, this is what the, You're like, you're going to better them. In one of his uh, skits, uh, Brian Regan, he's a, he's a comedian. And uh, I, I haven't listened to him probably for five, seven years, but his stuff was clean back then. I, maybe it still is. I hope it is. But uh, he, he talked about going into a, you can go into the, like a, a, a room, where there's a party going on, and you'll always have the, 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 the two tooth tails and the four tooth wisdom tooth tails. And what he's saying is that, you know, somebody starts sharing their experience, what they've been able to do, and about the time they start sharing it, somebody else walks up, you had two teeth, I had four wisdom teeth pulled, and mine were entangled, mine were, and they just go off. It's like they can't help themselves. See, God doesn't want us to look like that in His work. It's not your work. And and the person that comes up after you, you want to pray, Lord, do greater things in them and through them. Because you want the church to go forward. Right? Always, always, always. Latter part of verse 1, we haven't even got through verse 1 yet. Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you." So he's speaking to the people and what he's doing, he is laying out his testimony of integrity to the people. He's saying, folks, I want you to look back. I have everything I've tried to do, I've tried to do for the right reasons and I've tried to follow God and I've tried to do it with you in mind. I did not do it for myself and for personal gain. He wanted it clearly known that it was not his idea to appoint a king over Israel. This idea began in the hearts of the people, not in the heart of God or him, okay? Yet, God was going to allow it, and God directed it uh, to the point that it happened. God's in Saul being king now, and he's saying, yeah, even though you're the ones that wanted him, and God, it wasn't God's choice, but yet God's, God's in, and I'm supporting too. I'm very supportive here. That's a wonderful, wonderful picture here. So he, he's not struggling with insecurity issues. Verse 3, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before His anointed, whose ox have I taken, whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bride to blind my eyes with it. Testify against me and I will restore it to you. I I met with someone yesterday morning. I called them up and said, I'd really like, I texted them a couple of times, I'd like to get with you. And finally, we got on the phone and we talked and said, yeah, let's get together. So, we got together and after we were eating our breakfast, I said to them, I really was looking forward to meeting with you. There's some things I wanna say to you. I wanna apologize to you. That when I was a young man, I didn't have a clue what I was doing trying to be a a senior pastor. And, And there were times where I was insensitive to you and I need to ask your forgiveness. And I began to share different things that God had put on my heart about ways that I was insensitive and that I didn't give that person the time that they needed. It doesn't matter why I didn't uh, pay attention. You, you, you don't do that to people. And, and we had a beautiful time of fellowship, a time of reconciliation, he, he said, you know, I, I've said some things about you, uh, and, and I'm sorry, you know. And that's what it's about. It's, it's about us not being these people that have it all together and get offended when somebody says something about us or whatever. And, uh, and, and we, my ministry and who do you think you are? Let me forget, I was out at Dunklin'. I shared this before. I was out at Dunklin' and, and uh, Mickey Evans told me the story the a founder at Dunklin. a drug and alcohol rehab for twelve months for men, at Christian based. I, I wasn't there because I was an alcoholic or a drug addict. Okay, I, I was ministering out there. But anyway, and uh, and and he said, you know, there, there's a minister in the in the on, the on the on the coast here, the East Coast, that you you know, a lot of people know him, and uh, he came out here for some help. He was wanting some advice, and so. We took off walking through the, the, the field, you know, the cows out roaming, and they were just walking through. And he started talking, and he, he said, how can I help you? And this guy started talking about his ministry. He said, well, you know, in my ministry, and people just don't respect, and what in my ministry? And, and finally, Mickey said, I just reached down and scooped up a fresh cow patty, and I threw it at him and hit him. He went, what are you doing? And he said, well, that's what's coming out of your mouth right now. You might as well wear what's coming out of your mouth. It's not about you. You've made your ministry about you. No wonder you got a mess. Isn't that good? That's a good reminder. Maybe I should have a little bucket of cow manure <laughs> up on the platform, but every once in a while. <laughs> no, you should have the cow manure for me. That's what it is. Okay. All right. Verse, uh, Verse 3 again. Uh, latter part or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it testify against me and I will restore it to you oh I love that he's reminding them that he has not defrauded or oppressed them and if I have if there is something please let me know because I want to make that right I don't want to have any count accounts that have not been settled before God He's letting the nation know that he passed a good legacy of leadership on to King Saul. He's not handing Saul a mess to clean up. If Saul proved to be a poor leader, no one could say it was because of Samuel's bad example before him. And so look how the people respond. Verse 4, they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Israel knew that Samuel was a good godly leader. He didn't lead them for what he could get from them, but for what he could give to them. So Samuel settled the matter. All parties agreed that he led Israel well. By the way, this is the second time Samuel mentioned his anointed in this passage. It's a reference to Saul because he was anointed as king. Samuel deliberately included Saul in this Why? So that people would see the transition occurring. So he's talking up the man of God who's anointed. That helps people to make a transition. So important. Verse 6, and Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that He performed for you and for your fathers. And when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord, and he said, we have sinned uh, to the Lord, and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, other gods. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent jerubbabel uh, and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So he's reminding them of how God has been so righteous and so good and so gracious to Israel and how they've been so evil and so rebellious and wicked against God. And yet God still kept coming back. Why? Because He's the God of a second chance. God never quits on us. That's what grace is for. Amen? And here God in the Old Testament, under the law, God's showing grace. What a great God. Verse 13, and now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So even though it wasn't God's choice, you wanted the king, but now the Lord is setting that king over you. He's the one that gave you the king that you wanted. Verse 14, if you will, here it is. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. So here Samuel presents Israel with an important choice. They were disobedient in wanting a king, but God gave them over to the king of their choice. Now if they would fear the Lord and serve Him, God would still bless them but verse 15 if you will not obey the voice of the lord but rebel against the commandment of the lord then the hand of the lord will be against you and your king so god's explaining through samuel right out of the gate what it's going to look like in the future if you'll choose to obey god you're going to be blessed with this king if you and your king obey me but if you choose to rebel then it's not going to end well for you and your king I mean, there's no surprises here. When things go wrong in our life, we always like to blame God. Hang hang on a second. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Well, I just can't believe that he allowed this to happen. No, you're asking the wrong question. It's not why did he do that to them because they were innocent. It's why are you still here? Because you sinned. You should be dead. God doesn't need to give us a single day to live. He's doing it out of grace that we might repent of our sin and be saved. Amen? Amen. When you think about it, God is so unbelievably gracious. The Bible says, those whom the Lord loves, He chastens. That's Hebrews 12, 6. That means that God's chastening hand is a sign of His love. In one way or another, all of us have rebelled against God. But the great news is that on the basis of this text that we're reading tonight, God says, even though you've rebelled against me or ignored me, if you'll obey what I say and fear again, I will be with you. There's not anything you can do that will turn God away from offering you grace. That's what grace is for. Grace isn't for people who think they got it all together. It's for people who have really messed up. And He knew you would. And so, He gives grace. If you don't, then I'll chasten you because I still, as your Father, I still love you. Even if you don't obey Me, (laughs) I'm still going to love you by chastening you. Many people who know they married the wrong person or made a wrong move or took a wrong turn, they took the wrong job, they made the wrong decision, they bought the wrong car, Instead of getting a car they could afford, they went with the big car, you know, whatever. Look, yet God will forgive you. He will still be your God if you'll return to Him. Isn't that beautiful? Hey, we're learning this grace of God from an Old Testament under the law text. If anybody ever tells you that the Old Testament is nothing but law, wrong! grace, love and grace, even while they were under the law. Verse 16, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before you, before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, the backstory: story. That was the season of harvest, and in that season, it is a drought season. There is no rain that falls. And he says, just to show you that what you did was rebellious against God and that you wanted a king and God gave you the king that you wanted because you didn't want God to be your king. Just to show you, I'm going to ask the Lord to send forth a thunderstorm. And boy, did God send a thunderstorm. And they came under the fear of the Lord as they should. Amen. They greatly feared the Lord, and they greatly feared the man of God, Samuel. Uh, Throughout Scripture, signs are generally for the unbeliever, not for the believer. Now look at this. Samuel said, in order for you to believe what I'm saying is true, I've got to send you a sign from heaven. That's how far they had drifted from God. They needed a sign to believe. Signs aren't for believers. In most of the Scripture, signs are not for believers. The reason God uses signs is because people don't believe in God. And by sending a sign, all of a sudden it catches them, and they're like, what? What?" And then God announces, it was me. I am real. God uses signs with the unbeliever. The believer doesn't need a sign. You're already saved. Why do you need a sign? What's the sign for? Make you have a warm fuzzy? See, we get so sensually focused, the five senses. I need to see it. I need to hear it. I need to feel it. I need to taste it. I need to touch it. I need to smell it. No. You walk by faith, not by the five senses. And when God provides one of the five senses, an experience, we rejoice over it. But don't seek it. Seek God not the sign. That's what Jesus said to, even in Matthew in our study on Sundays. He said to the people, you're, you're coming to me for the sign. You're coming to me for the healing. You're coming to me to see me deliver somebody. You're not seeking me. I'm, I'm giving you truth that'll set you free, but yet you seek the signs. So we need to be careful there, ever so careful. Uh, The question to ask here with with the last part of the Scripture where he asks God to send rain and then the people all of a sudden come under the fear of the Lord, the question to ask is, why now? Why have a sign now? Why didn't he provide that sign way back in the beginning? Because then they probably, when they were saying, we want a king, and he provides a sign, they'd go, oh, no, we don't want a king. We want God. I'll tell you why. Because that wouldn't have happened. They were so far from God that they were blind to God. They couldn't see God. And even if God had shown up, they wouldn't see it. Plus, God wanted to establish Saul as their king. And so now afterwards, after Saul's king, after they see the mighty hand of God work through Saul, now they believe. Now God says, now let's deal with your sin. Now let's deal with your sin. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. Look at that now. Did you, hear, did you see what I just read? <clears throat> pray to the people. The people said, pray for your servants to the Lord whose God? Samuel, pray to your God for us. These are God's chosen, holy, dearly loved. And they're saying, pray to your God. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. That's how you know somebody's repenting. They will actually confess specifically. The confession is specific. This is what I'm confessing. This is what I'm repenting for. When somebody says to you, yeah, I just want to ask your forgiveness. Oh, oh okay, well, for what? Well, I just need to ask your forgiveness. No, no, specifically. What 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 are you asking forgiveness for? See, God wants us to be specific, and the people are being specific here. God can use that. Verse twenty. And Samuel said to the people, "Do not be afraid. You have done all this. You, you, you have done all this evil. Yet, there it is. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty." For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Oh my goodness. It pleased the Lord to make this people that we're reading here a people for Himself? Yeah. I want you to think about that personally the sins you've committed in your past, the things that you're deeply ashamed of, the things that you wish you could go back and do over, yeah, you, you are God's choice. He chose to save you. You have His affection. The Bible says the Lord delights in unchanging love towards us even sinners. And he's saying, now let's repent. Let's get right with God. Let's move forward because God loves you. You're his child. Verse 23, moreover as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Samuel was a prayer warrior. He was birthed out of a mom who prayed. He learned to pray in the temple. God came to him in prayer. And then he, he prayed, he interceded for Israel all the years of his ministry. He was a prayer intercessor. This was a man who prayed. And so now he's saying, God forbid if I not pray for you. He just got through telling them they were a bunch of sinners, a bunch of rascals. And he, but, but now he's like, oh my goodness, you, you would think I, you'd have to ask me to pray for you? Oh, of course I'm going to pray for you. Why? Because he has the same heart for the people that God does. It's interesting how we'll I, periodically somebody will walk up to me and they'll say, maybe they're in, in leadership training, and they'll say, I don't know how you do it. You, that, that person in our church, I mean, they're, a, they're just a mess. They're the biggest hypocrite in town. And yet you just let them sit there like that. How, how can you, I don't know how you do it. You, you love them the way God loves them. That's the only way I can do it. That's the only way, and there are limits to that, As I'm a flesh man like you. I don't know who gives what in the church. I don't, I've i never looked at the books. I don't have a clue how much any of you give. If I knew, I might hold something against you. I don't know. Maybe I'd, I'd treat you differently. <laughs> Those of you who are giving good, you know, I'd buddy up, and the ones who aren't spend a little less time with you. That's, that's my flesh, right? So I don't want to know. I want to treat everybody the same. But when you get, you know, sometimes people are like, well, I can't believe what that person... Hey, 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 you were that person at some point in the past. and God didn't quit on you. God came after you. We here tonight should love everybody that comes in the door of our church. Everybody, every time. We love them. We should lavish them with love. Like the old hymn, they get lost in his love. We ought to be lost in the love of God. We ought to treat people with such a love that it's just contagious. They just can't believe that they, that they could be loved like that when some of the people in the church know their past. That's what it ought to be like at Viral Bible Fellowship all the time. That's what Samuel's saying to the people here, you know. Wow, are you kidding? of course I'm going to pray for you. Look, verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So He comes back and reminds them again. Okay, so God loves you. I love you. I'm going to pray for you. But just remember, stay faithful to God. If you don't, it's going to end poorly for you. He's being honest with them, you know. By the way, intercession, I just want to say a word about that. Intercession is the common denominator for all godly men and women. Everybody. I don't care what title you carry in the church, if you're in charge of a ministry or you carry the title elder or pastor or whatever. Hey, the irreducible minimum for every Christian is that we are intercessors, that we pray for people. We pray that that God's will be done in the lives of people. Amen? Don't just be somebody who prays all the time for you. Don't just come to God with your public shopping list of all the needs you have in your life. How about investing in the lives of others? Every Christian ought to be like that. The people who have really left a mark for the Lord down through the ages in church history and in the Bible are those men and women who are given to intercession. You won't find great leaders that didn't pray. You just won't. Abraham was a friend of God, but he interceded for Sodom, a sick and sinful city. You think about Elijah. He was a man who was moved in the arena of the miraculous. I mean, Elijah performed 16 incredible miracles. Elisha, after him, performed 32. These men were prayer warriors. They prayed. Esther, the bride of the king, yet she risked her own life to intercede for God's people. You know what she said? Listen, quote, "...my heart's prayer and desire for Israel is that they should be saved. Mm. Paul said in Romans 9.3, "...for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh." All Paul ever preached was Christ crucified, and the Jews hated him for it. They beat him up so many times. They, I mean, the guy finally died in Rome. Yet here he says, I'd rather be cursed and die If it would save my brethren of the flesh, my Jewish brethren who don't know Jesus. Prayer, intercession is the key, I'm telling you. Where did Paul get that kind of love? It had to come through a passionate and consistent prayer life. See, the way you pray for others is the way you will function and behave. If you don't pray for people, yeah, you'll be critical of people all day long. But you find people who really pray, they don't really want to talk bad about people. They just want to, they're hoping for the best in people. They want the best to come out of the worst because they're praying that way. Amen? Amen. It makes no sense to pray that way and then get up and be a different person and be mean to them. Prayer is the key. The best gauge I know to measure humility in, the, in a human being or the lack thereof is to monitor their prayer life. I said this to you before, I believe it's very very true. Uh, Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. When you don't pray, you're basically telling God, I can do this on my own, I don't need you. A person who doesn't pray is proud because he is, in essence, saying, I can provide for my kids, I can excel in my career, I can fix this difficulty, I can get through this problem. A person who is given to prayer, however, is humble because he knows that without the Lord, he can't do anything. Prayer is not only the gauge of humility, it's the priority of true ministry. Notice that Samuel said he would pray before he said he would teach. If you're one who aspires to be used in Christian service, all Christian ministry starts in prayer. Otherwise, what are you ministering with? If you're not praying to God, before I go to the pulpit, I always want to be praying privately at home before I ever go to the church. And when I get to the church, we pray together. We circle up. Bill leads us. And then I get with a smaller group right after that, and we pray again. Prayer must be at the forefront of everything we do. You can't minister God without first starting in prayer. That's where the release comes from. If God's going to move, it's not going to be because you think you got it all together and you can deliver the mail and ring the bell. No, it's because you surrender to God. You put your hands in God's. That's what prayer does. The the, the apostles who were setting the pace, leading the way in ministry, you know what they said in Acts chapter 6, verse 4? Here's what they said. We must be given to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Look at the order. Prayer and then the ministry of the Word. We're not going to get caught up in everything else and try to fix everybody and try to get out there and be the ones who get all the kudos and people just, you know, we're like, you know, people, oh, you're so wonderful. We're going, oh, no, 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 it's, no, don't worry about, no, not me, not me. No, they said we must be given to prayer and the ministry of the word. You might never see that aspect of the ministry of a spiritual leader, but it better be there. Because if it's not, it'll show up in the pulpit. It'll show up in the ministry that you have. You've got to pray. What came first? Always prayer. Most Christian leaders know this theoretically, but I'm not sure they all understand it practically. I pray that we at Vero Bible Fellowship would be the exception. That we would make prayer the center and the forefront of everything that we do. I believe we're, we've, we've been trying to do that from day one. I really believe that. Because our whole motto is we want to join God in what He's doing. How can you join God if you've not been praying to God? You've got to know what He's doing, right? And that's really who we are. Let's just join God. Let's, let's stay devoted to a simple and pure devotion to Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen? Amen. God is so good. So glad you're here tonight. So glad you're watching live stream i pray that tonight god by his word and by the work of his holy spirit would strengthen you inside to the outside father may we go from growing internally to serving externally but the service that comes out of us is not from us it's from you because we've been with you we've experienced you we have a relationship Oh, an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. You provided that on the cross, Jesus. Thank you. You reconciled us back to God. And we're so thankful for it. We're thankful for your grace, for your mercy. We're thankful for your steadfast love. Oh, may we now return to you. May we be faithful to you. May we put prayer in front of everything that we say and do and may we be used greatly at your hand in jesus name and all god's people said amen Amen. Amen. god bless you hey there's some more food come grab some